right. I am now joined by Daniel Music. How are you doing today, Daniel? Uh, I've been better, Ben. Frankly, to be honest, I appreciate the uh, I, I appreciate the politeness of the query, but I, I tend to answer. <laughs> I tend to answer honestly nowadays. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, fill people in about why that is. Well, I will be reporting no later than May 8th to a United States federal prison that has yet to be determined to commence serving a 60-month sentence on a nonviolent first-time marijuana trafficking charge. That is nuts. Um, Yeah, it is fucking nuts. (laughs) In 2022... Going yep. to prison for two months for a nonviolent marijuana charge. So on a five piece too, on my first arrest. Like never had a traffic ticket, never had a anything, you know, nothing. Whatever. No no citations, no whatever. Might have been a juvenile vandalism charge in Canada. But yeah. So yeah, the first time I've ever had any contact with law enforcement, I'm about to have to go do a five piece for week in the feds. All right. So, so I want to hear how this happened. So, so let's, but let's back up a little bit and you know, sure. talk about, uh, so, so talk about like what you do. I mean, like what's, what's your life like before this? Um, well, so, I mean, so, so the thing is it all happens in stages. So the, the, the thing about me that makes me, I guess, particularly interesting, even as a federal, as one of the last, uh, cannabis prisoners, is the fact that I was formerly a hard-charging, young, brash, left-wing criminal defense attorney, and I made kind of a Swiftian satirical ad that advertised my services and mocked the American criminal justice system for the cruel, unjust, sick joke that it is and was then and, and still is now. Uh-huh. And that commercial uh, went viral because things that are funny are true and things that are true are often funny. I think that's a that's a that's probably a philosophical point that that, that gets from the people. Mm-hmm. And I got a couple million views very, very quickly and it made me, gave me my first 15 minutes of fame and then followed by the second ugly 15 minutes after I got exposed as being Southwestern PA's largest marijuana kingpin. But... <laughs> <laughs> At the time when I made the commercial, I had every intention of just, you know, continuing to fight the good fight and help people through the arts of uh, criminal defense. But what happened was the commercial was almost too successful in spite of itself. And I realized that I couldn't give anyone a fair shake who was paying me to come into court for them anymore because the judges and prosecutors and cops hated me so much that I was literally just a walking uh, prejudice to my client. What did you say in the commercial? Um, so I said in the commercial, it's kind of like it's kind of like people uh, termed it as being like the real life Better Call Saul, and it was actually a hundred times funnier than people thought at the time because not only was I actually a lawyer, unlike Saul, and I was actually Jewish, unlike Saul, and I'm actually yeah. Jewish. All the people in the commercial were my actual friends, most of whom were real criminals that I just got to come hang out with me and do the commercial because they thought it was funny. And I was also a criminal. So, you know, there, 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 there were like there were like nine meta layers to the commercial that now can be dissected. But in the commercial, it's basically like a it would be like a, be, a better call Saul ad or a personal injury attorney ad uh, slated for criminal defense. 
I start to add off with uh, consequences suck, don't they? Uh-huh. And then I walk, I, and then I spin around in the you know overly dramatically in the chair, the swivel chair, and I'm like, "Hi, I'm Daniel Music, and I'm an actual criminal defense attorney." You know, like I I, I kind of tr- channeled a lot of like Troy McClure from The Simpsons. Uh-huh. You know? And, and and then I showed people committing various crimes like you know drug trafficking, armed robbery, solicitation of prostitutes, whatever. And then um, they would have like an infographic would show what crimes they committed, and then they would turn to the camera as they were committing the crime and go, "Thanks, Dan." <laughs> so the 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 ads went off like napalm in a uh, in a you know in, in the Vietnamese foliage, I, I didn't think that that was going to be. I thought it was going to get like twenty thousand views. I thought I, I stopped looking after like a million change because I was just like I didn't even want to look at it anymore. I was like, oh god, it's kind of like yeah. this Kafka esque nightmare where I was like chained to this fucking ad. And now, so what happened was, you know, and I, there's a bunch of things that intervened to that, and I can get into the story about how I became a marijuana kingpin too. But basically. At the conclusion of my federal case, where I refused to cooperate, despite them trying for literally years to make me cooperate, uh, they dropped this incredibly wacky, unhinged sentencing memo that had virtually nothing to do with the crime, which I was guilty of. I'm guilty of an 100 kilogram marijuana trafficking conspiracy, for sure. I didn't ever, never made any about it or try to pretend that I wasn't. I fled out as soon as I could because I wanted to get this over with and I knew I didn't have any ability to fight it. But the entire sentencing memo was about the commercial. So like the, the so think, think about how weird that is. Like I'm I'm getting sentenced on this federal marijuana crime in the eleventh hour and fifty-ninth minute of prohibition on federal marijuana or prohibition on marijuana anywhere right and the sentencing memo is entirely predicated on the commercial so the opening line of the sentencing memo says consequences sure suck don't they wow yeah so yeah that's 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 my life so it's pretty 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 fucking meta jesus uh and so okay so with this um you know this this charge like all uh you know the only thing about this that made you stand out uh to you know prosecutors to you know any more than anybody else who was uh uh who was who's arrested for uh, for selling marijuana is is that you're a lawyer and you made this commercial like that's it there's nothing yeah, well, else that's... And, and... And to be fair, was a lawyer because I also I don't want to give the impression that I was like double dealing at the time or whatever. I actually left the profession under the best auspices in the sense that I wanted to you know do no harm. And I thought I was like, I can't I can't really help anybody. I'm better off literally just generating my cash flow the way I was going to generate it and funneling that money to like progress, like truly progressive candidates, not you know, not not fake centrist Dems, but, you know, socialists at right. local levels and stuff like, you know, like, you know, people are our age or younger or whatever, uh, you know, paying people's rent directly, direct action, direct aid. I was I, I, I made an analysis and for my own life and for trying to help other people, the best calculus was that I really couldn't be in here anymore. The first time I went to trial, I got held in contempt. So I was, like, I was like, like I almost went to jail like the first time I took a client to trial. And how did, I'm not how did, like, how did that yeah. happen? Um, 
So what the, the, the thing about it was I, okay. So like, look, in fairness, I am a fucking wise ass and like my cynicism <laughs> and my sarcasm and my pathological hatred of authority gets me into a lot of issues. I saw something in the midst of this trial that made me laugh, which was the prosecution had this like crappy, you know, dust ridden desktop tower that was uh, projecting a blurry evidentiary image onto a projector screen. And the message that was coming up, like the holding message before the slide came in, was warning, this is a pirated program. Uh, you know, your computer was filled <laughs> with viruses. So I was like, I was like, the prosecution is like using like fucking like virus ridden, like porn, like lime wire <laughs> software to like conduct the trial. And I thought that was funny. So I, 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 and it wasn't in open court. Okay. Like the jury wasn't in, no one was talking, but I did take out my phone and I took a fucking photo of it because I thought it was funny. I'm sorry. I did. Nobody said anything to me about it. Then we went to the judge's chambers and the judge was bullshitting with us. And um, I literally, I got a phone call, like my phone was buzzing. So I pulled it out of my pocket real quick and just hit the, you know, the end and saw who called. And the judge blew up on me out of nowhere to the point where even the other attorneys, they were completely shocked. He said, what are you doing taking out a phone in my chambers? God damn it. Get the hell out of here. So I realized that I was like, I was like, okay, I was like, I'm really sorry. I didn't know that I, I couldn't. I was, I just didn't want the phone to ring and interrupt the, what, what you were talking about to us. So I'd left. I came back and a bailiff tried to confiscate my phone. I told him he couldn't have it. And that bam, became a whole situation. They literally took my phone to jail for the day. They locked it up under the courtroom. <laughs> like they literally took my phone to a little phone jail under <laughs> under the court and, and locked it up. And then the judge, I came in for a contempt hearing and the judge gave me a speech. Um, and he the speech started with, you know, you make these commercials and you think we're funny attacking a system that everyone here has invested their lives into. And it was literally like a movie. As soon as he said that, I thought in my mind, I, I can't ever do that. I can't be back here again. It's not going to go well for me or anyone else. And it certainly didn't go well for me either. Their, their, their axe to grind with me persisted through the rest of the decade. And as soon as they had opportunity to fuck me over something that I left myself vulnerable to, they did. But at least I didn't hurt, you know, a client that gave me honest money to try and keep them out of jail. Right. Yeah. I wrapped up everything I did. I took care of everyone else I could take care of. I did like free work for another year. Probably did like $50,000 worth of free work for family and friends. Uh, called it a day and then went back to the trap. Got it. Um, and how long? How long was uh, was there between then and uh, and we got arrested? Um, what, like four years, probably. I would okay. say, yeah, at least four years. So, like in that in that time, in terms of marijuana trafficking, what I I was I was pretty innovative, at least for my area. I was kind of like a pioneer. I was the first guy to have a dispensary. It wasn't a legal dispensary. What we did was we just locked our landlord out of the basement of an apartment building. Uh -huh. We turned the basement into a dispensary for people. And we had people lined up around the fucking block 24, like not 24 seven from noon to 10, 365 days a year with a half day on Christmas. And like, we, we literally, we, 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 we were the first store because this was before even any of the corporate multi-state quasi-medical operators were able to get their bullshit state permits and, and open up. 
So we pioneered there. We were the first guys to bring in extracts, the first guys to bring in carts, the first guys to bring in exotic flavors, first guys to do mass edibles. And we had a really, really loyal base of hundreds and then thousands of people. The store was kind of like a durable cultural institution, like a spot in the village or something, you know, like where every walk of life, race, creed, color, ethnicity, age, gender rubbed elbows. And then it was run by this really, really cool um, Big Lebowski-esque character whose name was Dale. And he was an ex-steel worker who was uh, part of the Mon Valley uh, Citizens Action Council, which were basically like left-wing terrorists or freedom fighters that when the mills closed down, they were doing stuff like blowing up banks and like uh, uh, barricading themselves inside community buildings, armed, trying to take like steel executives hostage, uh, skunk oil bombing, like fancy receptions and stuff like that. He, you know, he was a he was a, literally like a left, like a literal, like left wing street soldier in the Mon Valley. And then he kind of lapsed into being super washed and literally living in a van down by the river. And then he ended up being my downstairs neighbor. When I was in so so I've, I've never, I've never heard any of this. When, so when was all this happening? Oh, with Dale. Okay. So, so, you know, Pittsburgh was the steel city, right? So right. we were the you know center of center of steel and iron manufacturing in the entire world. And uh, we lived people in, in Pittsburgh, particularly working class uh, Pittsburghers and people in the area around Pittsburgh, a lot of steel was centered on the rivers, hence like, you know, three rivers. There's the Monongahela, the Allegheny and the Ohio. So in all those rivers, there's a lot of gigantic steel plants. They almost look like Star Wars buildings or like ziggurats, like abandoned alien structures because you need the water, you know, to do that amount of cooling. So the towns that popped up around these places were these like rollicking, colorful, blue collar kind of paradises where guys were making like $200,000 in the eighties, you know, doing steel work. The social contract was being over honored to some extent or not over honored, honored properly because you had highly skilled employees making good wages with serious benefits and lifetime employment and their sons and daughters could enter various facets of the industry too. So it was just kind of this like beautiful halcyon bubble for from I would say it was ugly when it started. You know, there was a, yeah. there, the, you know that that was when they had to uh, when they tried to assassinate Frick and the riots in Homestead. But unions really, after, especially during World War II, the unions had risen to a great degree of power because the defense industry. You know, you needed those people. So by the seventies, early eighties, you know, the, the living standards were through the roof. And then all of a sudden, literally in the course of about four months, all the major, you know, due to, um, you know, trade protectionism and, and uh, neoliberal bullshit that Reagan was doing, basically, you know, letting Chinese and Korean steel flood in and removing, you know, just removing and letting um, the, the large, the billionaires take their take their stuff off off uh, shores. The entire industry ended in about four months. Right. So. Um, you had this entire generation of people who became dispossessed almost overnight. And it wasn't like they went from being like lower middle class to being destitute, like almost dust bowl poor. They went from having all their kids in college and in law school, their pensions and retirements completely funded, two houses and a vacation house paid off and two boats in the driveway to everyone being belly up, every man losing their job overnight. So... Dale lost his job, and some of the guys, the guys who were who were fighters, 
they decided to fight back. You know, first it started with picketing and mutual aid, but then the hardcore cadre of them, uh, amongst which was Dale, they hooked up with some, uh, I think, radical, I think, Lutheran and Protestant um, clergy. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, they, and they started, you know, taking direct action, like blowing up like doors off Mellon banks and like accosting, um, you know, accosting executives and stuff like that. Like, you know, because they just they they weren't going to lay down their entire way of life without a fight and they didn't care if they went to jail or got killed. Yeah, I mean, this is a lot of the, you know, the first part of this I'm you know familiar with. I mean, my. uh uh, you know, my mom grew up in, uh, in Youngstown and I have, oh, you're uh, yeah, so I, I've, uh, you know, grew up going to, you know, see my grandparents there in the sort of post-industrial wasteland version of, uh, of Youngstown, but the, uh, but the, uh, the like laid off steel worker, uh, you know, laid off steel worker terrorism, that's, that's, a that's a first for me. I hadn't heard about that before. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't really up on it. I wasn't really up on it either. You know, there was this, this man, you know, in Pittsburgh, everything was whacked up into houses. You had these old mansions that have been whacked up into these really, really almost being John Malkovich esque like Terry Gilliam esque apartment houses where like the apartments didn't make sense. Like you'd open up your closet and like fall into someone's living room kind of, you know? Uh. And I lived in one of these when I went to law school. It was in the neighborhood Friendship, which if you ever watched the uh, the movie Wonder Boys by the, the book Michael Chabon, that's where the yeah. professor who's played by Michael Douglas, that's where his house is. So it basically looks like that house and that's the neighborhood. So in the basement of all these apartment houses, there was always like a yinzer. There was always like this like crazy old like working class guy who was like a putative superintendent. But like he was really just kind of like washed. And Dale was like the craziest one of all of them. He, you know, allegedly did maintenance for the, the, the landlord company that owned all these houses. But he really just like blasted fucking um, like Zeppelin and the Stones all day. <laughs> and skinnered and smoked bowls of swag and he had a monte carlo and a sunfire and a really crappy boat he called the terrible boat like the Steelers terrible towel uh-huh. and he would just hang out in the back all day on like folding chairs and hold court and he knew realized that my weed was better than his at some point so like one night i heard his cane like boom 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 like you know his ceiling my floor so i go down to his his room with his basement apartment which is what you have to go through the laundry room to get there. It's like, I walk into his, you know, his, 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 his den of iniquity. And he yeah. says, uh, he's like, he's like, Dan, I know your butt's way better than mine. Brother <laughs> kind of talked like Randy Savage. He literally <laughs> did. He was like, this stuff is so good. It's incredible. I say, he's so good. It's incredible. It's something you'd say all the time. He'd be like, I can smell it, man. He's like, why don't you let me like get an ounce, bro? And I was like, all right. Cause I was selling weed then, but I was selling weed in law school and I would just trap all night in my hallways when I wasn't studying. Like I would just literally meet customers in my hallway, get up from my book or my laptop, go do the sale, go back in. I'd rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. I, you know, it was just, I was like sleeping two hours a night, selling weed most of the day and then studying and, you know, going to school. He, you know, he convinced me to leave him an ounce and I didn't really know this guy. And he's kind of like this like nut that like lives below us, like the troll below the drawbridge. Uh-huh. That was like one of the smartest financial decisions I ever made because he like sold that entire ounce. Then he needed two. 
then he needed three. So then cue the montage music. And like, <laughs> as I'm getting out of school, this entire store phenomenon happens. And before you know, we have like shelves with merchandise. We have like staff managers, workers, Dale's running it. We have menus going out. We have a fucking phone number, 412-543-TREE. You know, and it just became like this, this cultural phenomenon that was populated like the workers were all like nut, like Dale's like nutball ex steel workers, and like my friends who were like jungleist like rave casualties, and then the customers were literally anybody who smoked weed from the age of like ninety to eighteen years old. Wow! Yeah. So, so this is going out for a few years. How does uh, how does it all end? Well, so what happened was I um I I used the store as a base to move into wholesale because the, the, you know, weeds liberalized even now, even then at this time in America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Pittsburgh, and, you know, you're saying you're from Youngstown, Youngstown and Pittsburgh are sister cities to a certain extent. So, you know, there's a confluence of municipal corruption, post-industrial wasteland. And Pittsburgh's a little bit more bohemian than Youngstown because of the university. It has more right. of that flair. Has like a little bit of that like bohemian, you know, uh, kids esque skateboard graffiti hip hop energy. And then there's organized crime, like or large scale organized criminal activity. So I was like really tapped into like all the weed kingpins because they all came from my neighborhood previously. And there was a power vacuum that had opened up because the guy who was like my mentor had just uh, shipped out to do an 11 and a half year federal prison sentence for marijuana trafficking in like the turn of the decade. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of uh, soldiers, but there wasn't like a, a captain. I had this base economic base of the store where nobody could steal my customers because nobody could onboard those people or do that work. They were all wholesalers. So I basically slowly over time just started gobbling up more and more of the Pittsburgh market by doing honest business with fair prices because I didn't need to tax people four, five, six, seven hundred dollars on a fee because I was making all this money from the store and the breakdown sales, which yield a much higher profit margin on a much lower volume. So I was able to over time accrue all the customers. And, you know, all the larger scale people and kind of put them under me because I wasn't greedy. I would only charge basically, a, we call it a point, a hundred bucks on every pound. So mm-hmm. I, I, my, my, my trade mushroomed and mushroomed and mushroomed. And then it got to the point where we had to create a separate site um, that wasn't where the store was. So we basically made a wholesale store in Squirrel Hill, the traditional Jewish enclave where yeah, I grew yeah. up, which I, was a, uh, I actually, I actually will, I actually will just parenthetically say. So, by the way, just to be clear, my my mom comes from Youngstown. I mean, I so I grew up visiting it sometimes. I I didn't grow up there, but I had a, uh, but I did actually live in uh, in Pittsburgh for uh, for two years. I went to, uh, I briefly went to the University of Pittsburgh, and then I like dropped out, and I lived there for a year uh, after that. And um, uh, I was, I, so I actually did spend a, uh, I actually did spend a year living in Squirrel Hill. So I know the neighborhood very well. Okay. Yeah. That's where I grew up. I'm a Jewish dude from Squirrel Hill, proud card carrying member of the Squirrel Hill ethnic underworld. So like, I kind of like, so, so, you know, the milieu of Squirrel Hill, it's kind of like, it's an upscale neighborhood and it's urban, but it kind of feels more like Brooklyn than it does like, mm-hmm. you know, a suburb, you know what I mean? It's a city neighborhood. 
So like there's a small group of like uh, guys like me that were like on, you know, that like we trafficked weed. That was like, that, that's kind of like what guys in Squirrel Hill have done since I was a kid. You know, it's kind of like a, I was a legacy operator. It's like a multi-generational thing that's been handed down from like one older guy to a younger guy, like showing him the ropes, how to do it, whatever. Right. So I, we, I set up my wholesale situation in Squirrel Hill. And so it was kind of like a nonviolent, like Jewish weed Sopranos thing happening up there where we had like an apartment clubhouse, a garage for drops and a same, you know, crazy cast of characters, all ex steel, most of ex steel workers who are older, who were working the, uh, the situation. And then this actually then stems out of another messed up steel town, the place Braddock, where the John Fetterman was the mayor, the guy's the lieutenant governor who's going to run against uh, Dr. Oz for Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a gang investigation out of um, Braddock that was targeting a gang that was selling harder drugs like fentanyl, cocaine, crack cocaine, whatever. And they that was a full-scale wire-style investigation with like like a Title III wiretap, surveillance, cell phone tracking, pull cams, FBI all over people, paid informants, whatever. They tapped their phones. They found a guy who was selling weed to them. They tapped his phone. That guy was buying weed off of a guy who bought weed off of us. So the guy who bought weed off of us talked into that wiretap in April of 2019. And the feds being feds, they followed the breadcrumbs to Squirrel Hill and they set up on us completely unbeknownst to us because I didn't even know that these people, that the gang existed. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of them until after the indictment hit. So on the day of the indictment, I had to go up there because um, there was a discrepancy in the money that was going out and it had to be settled. It was coming under about 0.75 of 1% maybe, give or mm-hmm. take. And that's, that's an issue though when you're sending half a ticket out a week, you know? Right. So, uh, sorry, do you know what half a ticket is? No. What's that? Half, half a million cash. So a ticket's a million. So when you're sending half a ticket out a week, um, you know, 0.75 off and you're, everyone's only making a hundred bucks per pound. You know, you're, you're basically, you're eating 40 pounds of profit. It's, 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 it's actually a lot as weird as that sounds. Cause you're making a lot of money, but you're, you have so many people that you have to feed your margins are razor thin. And so is everyone else's at the higher levels. Like people aren't, you have to sell everything before you make anything basically. That's the economic paradigm that you're trapped in in the waning days of a uh, of black market uh, pot dealing. Mm-hmm. So they uh, they they had cameras on us. I got there. We offload like 245 pounds. There's another 160 pounds in these orange boxes in the garage under us. We actually called ourselves the Orange Box Gang because we used those orange rigid contractor lock boxes. And we would just go into apartment buildings that we didn't even, like, they weren't ours. We would just get keys for the front, dress like maintenance guys, and drill <laughs> boxes into the basement and then stencil maintenance and then lock them up. And we would throw, you could fit about 100 pounds in each one. And 100 pounds in the East Coast, that's we call it a box. And that's kind of like your basic unit of measurement for a lot of weed. Like, anything less than a box isn't, like, a lot, a lot. Anything more than a box, that's, like, big boy shit. So they... They surveilled us. We didn't realize it. The driver leaves right when he gets on the parkway, leaving Squirrel Hill. They hit him and they pull him over and they find 469,475 in cash. And I get word about it because the chase car tips me off. So I go running back into the place 
And I tell the two guys there, one of whom is my best friend's dad and one of whom is his uncle. I'm like, yo, they just pulled over the driver and they pulled over the driver like 10 blocks from here, like in Squirrel Hill. There's a raid inbound. We need to get the fuck out of here right now. I was like, we have to bag up all this weed and run. And mm-hmm. they just kind of looked at me. They got real boomery. <laughs> they just kind of like looked at me like dumbfounded uh-huh. because I don't think they were like mentally able to make that uh, adjustment. You know, like like that that this was really happening. I understood based on my prior career what was about to happen. It was clear. I was in denial for about thirty seconds, and then it was kind of like that scene in Private Ryan on the beach where like he snaps out of it. You know, yeah. like, I was like snaps out of the fugue state, and I was like, we need to fucking go. We need to load shit up and run. The one guy was like, you and my brother leave the apartments in my name. You just get the you get the fuck out of here. And there was this really kind of tearful like you know moments i was like no i don't want to go and he's like get out of here man you gotta fucking go you know so yeah i i he i leave casually because i correctly surmised that i was under surveillance as i left until i got to a set of city stairs i walked up the city stairs very casually and then as soon as i got to the top of the city stairs my fat ass ran like i was catching a fucking bomb in football you know like a like 90 uh-huh. yard I ran for my fucking life and having grown up as like a street kid in Squirrel Hill who was always getting in trouble doing, you know, graffiti and fighting and, you know, like, you know, little B and E and freestyling and smoking weed in public and, you know, hanging out with girls late night. I knew every like alley, open door, open window, cut, hole in fence, whatever. And I just ran for my fucking life and I made it to Shenley Park successfully. I go tearing down the hillside because I'm trying to get to where the truck is pulled over so I can see on the parkway because the hill kind of is close to the parkway. It's not as close as I thought it was because I was I was panicking. And then my phone rings, my burner on an open line, not an encrypted app. And I picked it up and it's the guy from the apartment. And I'm like, what's up? And I hear him. He just goes, they're here. And I can hear, like, in the background, like, like, I can literally hear them coming, like, like, trying to breach. Like, I can hear, like, police search warrant, open the door, get on the fucking ground. You know, I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, I was like, I was like, I'll get you out. And, and you just hear a voice go, see ya. And then the line cuts. Uh, all right. Yeah. So I'm like, we're, we're fucked. We're so fucked. And at this point, remember, I don't know anything about Braddock. I don't know anything about any of this. I literally, this was just like, it's like you're a soldier and a missile just like hits your foxhole. You have no idea. You know it's the enemy. You don't know what unit, where, how it came, whatever. You just know that something really bad happened and you have almost no way of responding to it except running for your life. So I make it back home. I pull my wife out of our house because like, I'm like, we need to run right now. And yeah. I basically go on the run inside the city with like a mobile command post, set up shop downtown in a hotel room, and I start bailing everyone out that I can. And I look at the paperwork when I bail them out, and I see the the search warrant is federal. So then I'm like, then I mean, at that point, that's the part of the movie where it's like Goodfellas, where it's like, then yeah. I realize everyone was fucked. Right. These are the yeah. bad times. Yeah. Yeah. The bad times. Then three weeks later, they indicted the case. 
one by one. I got everyone lawyers. I you know gave them money, tried to do the right thing. One by one, everyone falls out of contact. It becomes this like weird, almost like you know, I don't know, like Cold War esque, like spy thriller nightmare because everywhere we go we're being followed by agents there's cameras that just kind of like bloomed outside our house at all angles like filming onto like our various doors and porches i start having people call me and they want to reminisce about like previous deals and stuff like that and i realize what it is is they're wired up you know they have handlers right they're trying to incriminate me and, you know, so now I'm like playing a chess game for my life, basically. And every move, I'm losing more and more of my pieces. And they're getting closer and closer to me. Um, my best friend's dad uh, kills himself under indictment because he had never been in trouble before. And he was just really there to help out on Fridays. You know, um, you know he wasn't like a serious player in the game. His brother would just hire him to come down that day. Yeah. And he, you know, he's looking at a mandatory minimum federal prison sentence in his 60s, and he gets fired from his job, and he's getting harassed by the police. He's getting harassed by even by, like, weird right-wing people in his community are popping up on his Facebook like, criminal! So he just loses it, and he hangs himself. Jesus. So, yeah, I remember when my friend told me I got down on my hands and knees and vomited all over, all over the, uh, the street in a Target parking lot. I was just, like, so sick that this is what... It had come to. Um, so by the fall, I kind of see what's going on. I understand what's arrayed against me. So I reach out to the I reach out to the government via my attorneys and I ask not for any special deal or consideration. I just ask if I might turn myself in on the same charges that other people have been indicted on. And we can I can plead out immediately. Like literally, like normally indictments take years. I was like I will literally arrest me, process me, put me in front of a magistrate judge. I'll plead out, give me the mandatory minimum, and I'm gone. Yeah. I was, I, that's all I want. The only thing that I wouldn't do is I wouldn't tell on anybody. Right. I refuse to cooperate. So they came back to my lawyers, and they said, no, we're good on him. The only way he could come in is if he tells on people. So I was basically like, go fuck yourselves. I'm not telling on anyone. And then I embarked back into my miserable, paranoid, sad life with my wife, waiting for them to kick my door in every morning. And then COVID happens. So, yeah, I don't need to tell you about COVID or any other human being on earth, but we're living with everything you had to deal with during COVID plus this. But at a certain point, it gets to be so long that it feels like maybe this is going to be over. Even my attorneys are like, they would have pulled the trigger by now if they were going to come. So I establish a legitimate business. We start moving our lives forward. Then, you know, uh, what is it? Jolton Joe Biden, you know, he starts running for president and he makes that fateful promise to, uh, to not just me, but to, you know, millions of other people that his genocidal drug war policies had affected previously, which was that he said, no one should be in jail for pot. People who are in jail for pot, their records should be expunged, completely zeroed out. We should let them out and that we should stop federal prosecutions for marijuana. So obviously I'm a highly motivated, I wouldn't say I'm a single issue voter, but you can imagine (laughs) that's an important issue for myself, my family, and any of my friends who know my predicament, you know? So as much as, you know, I, I mean, I voted for Bernie in the primary. I still have the Bernie 16 sign in my window. I hold my nose. I vote for Biden. I tell a lot of other of my politically disaffected friends in the swingiest part of the swingiest state yeah. to, you know, to vote, do it, vote for Biden, man, like save my fucking life. 
by you know not claiming any great responsibility, but I've definitely gotten local people elected. So I know that you know you can ask our mutual friend. I can you know I can deliver a couple thousand voters because of the store. Yeah, you know, people people know me and love me. So Biden gets elected. Um, you know, our lives continue on. I'm like, okay, well, he hasn't done anything about pot, but I'm also not getting prosecuted. Now we're in two years, two years and change, two plus years territory. My wife and I decide, you know, we really can't live in the past anymore. We have to move forward with our lives. We've already given two and a half years to this shit. So we decide to move forward with our most fervent dream, which was to be parents. So we start pursuing an adoption. We jump through all the hoops. We take all the tests. We do everything we're supposed to do. We have the home study August 21st. We get approved. The social worker says, you guys are going to be great parents. Next stop is Seoul, South Korea in the fall to, you know, go through their side of it or whatever. But I'm recommending you move forward. And then 48 hours later, my federal attorney calls me at 945 at night. And he's like, you've been indicted. All right. Yeah. So, so what happens? I mean, like, it. if anything, I mean, this is getting to the point where it seems like Given um, given how long they waited to uh, to do it, like it almost sounds like they were going to throw the book at you much more than they actually did. I mean, what, what happens after this? So yeah, I mean, so 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 it's funny you say that, Ben, because when they called me and tell me I was indicted, it was really weird, like how I got indicted because it had been so long after the fact. I guess the marshals had been to my house a few times earlier that day, and I wasn't there. So then they just like assumed I wasn't in town. So then they called my lawyer to call me. So I had to wait four days before I surrendered. And I wasn't even sure what my charges were because so like in the federal marijuana charging scheme, there's the 50 kilogram conspiracy, which isn't really shit. And it has a five year maximum. So most guys get like a year on that. If it's not really that serious. Um, there's the 100 kilogram conspiracy, which is a motherfucker. That's the one I'm going in on, which has a five year mandatory minimum and a 40 year statutory maximum. And then the next one up, which has spelled some of my good friends, is the dreaded 1000 kilogram conspiracy, which is 10 to life. Yeah. So I assumed that I was going to get a thousand kilo. I mean, I had a lot of like, uh, I had a lot of like mobsterish meetings in parks with people like in, in the uh, between those four days from my indictment, you know, like other players in the scene and stuff like that. Yeah. that I had been in previously where we were all kind of speculating like, yo, you think they're going to a thousand KG me, dude? Like, fuck. And we were like running over the oral history of like, well, you know, uh, Benny and Moisha got thousand KG back in 94. I don't trying to think what happened with it. I mean, like trying to like understand like what they were going to do. I knew I wasn't going to tell no matter what. So I was basically like, well, hopefully I don't have to do 10, 12, 14 or 16 years. And I just have to fucking do five. Um, I come in that morning and my lawyer is like, good news, man. You, uh, you got the hundred kilogram kilogram conspiracy, which reminds me of how horrible bedside manner defense attorneys. have. I was like, great fucking news, Chuck. I was like, amazing news. I was like, what? I was like, like, remind you, remind me to tell you never to give me good news again in my fucking life. (laughs) Yeah, no. So, I mean, they, they, it was weird. It was almost like a, it wasn't conditional, but the vibe I got was they didn't want me to um to fight it at all they really wanted me to cooperate they assumed i would cooperate i think maybe that's also why they didn't go as hard on me because at a certain point 
if you put too much on somebody, you make it almost, you know, like you make it impossible for them to cooperate because even if they rat, they're still going to have to do like an insane amount of time. So they're probably just going to fight it and see what happens. I think yeah. that they just really assumed based on, you know, I think they profiled me. They were like, a Jewish guy from a wealthy family, Squirrel Hill, former attorney, you know, he's going to talk. Right. And, um, I, I made them very angry when I wouldn't uh, play to their type and I told them to go fuck themselves and I told them to go fuck themselves again. And then I thrice told them to go fuck themselves. And, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it got to the point where it was just like, it's like, you know, it's, I said, I was like, just give me my 60 months, man. You know, like I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not safety valving. I'm not, I'm not ratting, you know, like I, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not compromising my honor as a man, you know, to, to, to aid in prosecuting other people for cannabis crimes. So just do what you got to do. And that almost, it, like, it almost, it wasn't enough for them. You know, like they really, really, really wanted me to tell. And that was the context of how they dropped that nutty sentencing memo at the end, because what had happened prior was the judge said to them, uh, why do I have to sentence this guy to 60 months? Knowing why. I mean, he's a judge. He's familiar with the law. And this guy is a pretty right-wing, conservative, older guy, so he's no great fan of mine. But he knew what it was, which was that the disproportionality of the sentencing where you're going to have a bunch of guys get probation and then one or two guys get hardcore mandatory minimums just makes them look terrible on a marijuana case. It doesn't like encourage, you know, like, like institutionalists care about like the dignity of the court and respect right. for the court or whatever. And, you know, he knew he was like giving this smashing this guy with a mandatory isn't going to make him look good. Unfortunately, prosecutors have nothing to negotiate with because like they literally just like cudgel people into doing things because of Biden's crime bill which removes discretion from judges and places sentencing discretion entirely in the hands of the people who are bringing the case against you, which is, you know, even beyond all of its other uh, criminal justice implications, it's just like, a sh you know, it's a shocking lack of objectivity. Like the judge right. is supposed to be the neutral arbiter, you know, like, and this, this places that shit in the hands of the prosecutors. Like what kind of fucking fascist maniac ever thought that that was, I don't think any other country does that. You know, like, there's, there's countries that we like, you know, we, we decry as being like draconian and third world and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, they don't, have to, I, I think the judge gets to judge in those countries. Right, right, right. But, but, but I, I digress. So basically, they wanted me to safety valve, which is like it's a mechanism that was designed after mandatories came in for first first time nonviolent offenders who weren't deemed to be the leader, manager, organizer, financier of the conspiracy and didn't carry a firearm in commission of the conspiracy to get out from under the mandatory minimum. The problem is with the safety valve is that to do it, you have to do what's called a safety valve proffer an SVP. So basically like it can't be used against people in court and you don't have to go to a grand jury, but you still have to sit in a room and talk to them. You know? So I was yeah. like, I won't do it. I literally, uh, I literally was like almost, you know, on pure principle, I was like, I will not cooperate with you at all. You picked me two and a half years out of my new life where I wasn't bothering anybody. I was delivering kosher meals to senior citizens. I was <laughs> running a legitimate realty company and trying to start a family. You know, I, I had no, I wasn't, I, I, this wasn't me anymore. You picked, you plucked me out of this in 2020, at the, at the end of 2021. 
if you know if the judge i told them through my lawyer i was like if the judge has such an issue with this maybe you should have considered that before you were indicting people on mandatory minimums you know like you already killed somebody doing this right and they weren't happy about that so then they then 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 then, then they dropped that sentencing memo also what happened was i started getting a lot of positive media attention because I completely bucked what most criminal defendants do in these cases, which is most people shun the media. I started literally just doing, you know, Forbes want to talk to me. I talked to Forbes if, um, you know, uh, bread and poppies, which is a you know really progressive left-wing podcast out of Toronto want to talk to me. I talked to them. High times wanted to interview me. I did, you know, whoever, I didn't care. Anyone right. wanted to, after the first day when I pled guilty, when the boomer adjacent prohibitionist right-wing press, like the local ones, like the Post-Gazette and the Trib Live and stuff, those, those fascist rags, they did their number on me. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to tell my story because I'm not telling on anybody. So I have nothing to hide. Yeah. And whatever happens, happens. So they became sensitive to that because as my lawyer said, you know, criminal defendants don't get any positive press ever right. in the feds like there's no sympathetic federal defendants you know right. like 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 like, <laughs> you know, like you know this poor mafia boss this yeah, poor yeah, cartel yeah, leader yeah, yeah. yeah this poor fentanyl dealer <laughs> like you know there's no and i'm not i'm not even saying i'm super sympathetic i just think that the way they came about this is really fucked up and they hurt a lot of other people besides me in doing this right. and also that 93% of people cooperate based on my lawyer's estimation. So the fact that I refused to, even though I was basically rolling the dice with like an 80 year prison sentence, it gave me uh, some ability to have a righteous platform. You know, I was, I was able to transcend the criminal and kind of move into something else a little bit because I mean, people were, someone made a t-shirt for me with the orange box on it or a long sleeve and it says free dose. And then it says honor has a price above it. And then, like, like literally, we sold, like, hundreds. We might have even sold, like, a 1,000 of them by now or more. So now there's, like, all these people, like, walking around Pittsburgh with the orange box, like, on, uh-huh. on all the time. You know, people, people, um, people respect someone who stands up to an unjust law and doesn't, doesn't waver. Right. You know, regardless of their other faults or foibles prior. Yeah, fair enough. Well, hey, uh, before, uh, before we finish up, I, I, I want to give you a minute to to talk yeah. about what i know you really want to talk about here yeah. which is uh, no pardons no votes yeah so this stems from one of my really good friends a gentleman by the name of daniel ezra morath who ran uh massachusetts for bernie in 2020 mm-hmm. and is right now at yale law and he's he's gotten a bunch of progressive candidates elected in pittsburgh he's a really really dynamic uh you know progressive mind really driven person he was so outraged by this sentence coming down on me that he uh, hit me up on Facebook and we brainstormed together. And he said, he was like, I just want to do something. I don't know what to do. And we batted it around. And I, you know, I told him the, the base idea of it, which was that for younger and more progressive Democrats, the party has been time and time again, utilizing us to come out and beat their opposition and then they do absolutely nothing for us. Nothing. They, 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 they literally don't honor a single promise that they make. And they don't just not honor it. They literally just kind of snicker at us. And they're like, all right, idiots, like, you know, shut up. Right. Kids. You know, get a job. We'll call you when we need you again. So we seized upon it and we said, you know what? Fuck this shit. No pardons, no votes. There's 2,800 nonviolent federal prisoners 
inside right now for marijuana trafficking in the federal system. There's 40,000 nationwide, but those are under the purview of governors. Biden could free the 40,000 right now. Literally, if he just emailed Merrick Garland and said, do it, it would happen within a few weeks. He promised he would. But because he that promise was, in fact, a lie to try and get to the left of Bernie and Booker, who are handing his ass to him in that particular debate, he has no intention of doing so. It's pretty obvious he has no intention of doing so. He thinks weed's terrible. He thinks the war on drugs is great. I mean, he wrote the war on drugs. So, of course, he right. thinks it's great. It's his fucking legacy. So we're creating a situation now where it's time to do something radical and uncomfortable because it is going to hurt down-ballot Democratic candidates at a time where they can ill afford to be hurt. But I really want people to think about this. We're asking you to withhold your vote from any Democrat that does not support an immediate pardon. I don't mean lukewarm support. I mean, I want a documented record, and we want a documented record of them going to their party bosses, going to Biden. You know, if it's local, go to your state boss. If it's state boss, go to your congressional. Congressional, I want to see you go to the White House and broker a meeting and demand. No letters, no nothing. I want, I want, I want it with cameras on. If you want our vote, I want to see you with cameras on to the president demand that he pardons the 2,800 pot prisoners because this is a rounding error. I think it's like a $500 million situation, which for the feds is like that's pencils and erasers or ink or whatever. Right. If they can't do this, they're never going to do child care benefits. They're never going to bridge the gender equality pay gap. They're never going to fucking fix climate change. They're never going to fix health care. And they sure as fuck aren't going to forgive student debt. If they can't do this one, then all the other ones are lies. So let this be the litmus test and let us do what all these other, you know, our parents' generations did this shit all the time. You know, they sat out stuff. They switched from Republican to Democrat, Democrat to Republican. I'm not advocating to do any of that, but I'm saying that sometimes you have to show tough love to your party and withhold to make your prerogatives known. Otherwise, they just count on our support and then they go coddle the fucking cops. And the prosecutors, which is what Biden's plan was the entire time. They were like, okay, get all the young people to come out and beat Trump. And then we're, you know, I'll continue to coddle my law enforcement special interest groups, which are near and dear to my heart. And we're not going to give them anything they want. Well, you know, he promised this. I mean, he promised a lot of things. This is the, literally the easiest promise that right. he made. He hasn't, he hasn't done anything about it. So I'm asking anyone who's listening to this to share the message, to go on the website. It's pardonsnow.com. Sign the pledge, leave your email, and tell your elected representatives, Democrats mostly, in any state, if you don't pardon, we're not voting. You can't count on us anymore. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, I think that is definitely worth a shot. Uh, so uh, give, us, give us that website one more time. Pardonsnow.com. All right. Pardonsnow.com. All right. Uh, so, so how are you? Um, I mean, I can't even imagine, honestly, like, like how, uh, like, uh, I mean, how, how ready do you feel for, for having to actually go in now? Not at all. I mean, as just like you said, cause I'm no different than you. You know, I'm a, 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 I'm a,
I like my specialty pizzas. I love my wife. I love my mom and my dad. I love my home. I don't want to go, man. I'm really sad. I, I, they, they, Ben, they took away three plus years of our lives already. They took away our kid. And now I'm going to have to go do however much I have to do of this five before they let me go. I mean, so no, I'm not. I'm ready in the sense that I refuse to cooperate and I can walk in with my head held high. I can walk in the mirror and see a man. I'm not a coward. Yeah. No, I'm not ready. I'm not yeah. at all. How could you be? Yeah, that is that is an obscenity. I have, um, and again, it's it is it is 2022, and and it is like it's just you know I mean just listening to this whole thing. I mean I I just I just uh, like you know I just want to scream. It's like it's just weed, right? I mean it's not you know like yeah, it's just fucking weed. <laughs> Like, like you know, like okay, cool. I broke, I broke the weed law. Like, give me a fucking fine or a few months or something. Like, I, I, I a five to forty. Yeah, you, dude. That, <laughs> is, that is unbelievable. I mean, this is like it's, um, you know. And look, I don't know what I think the you know the laws should be for you know heroin you know fentanyl i mean i think i think that's a you know i think that's a complicated social problem and you know certainly i wouldn't right you know nudge people you know the direction of, of getting the help they need but like this is you know like like anybody who anybody who's an adult in 2022 i mean this is not uh you know it's like the scene in half-baked where dave Chappelle tries to go to rehab you know try, tries to go to na for weed and people are making fun of him like that's uh like that that is just um that is that is atrocious like it's, that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's beyond the pale no one ever should have gone but it, to 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 get railroaded in this era of quasi legality, literally because they fucking hated me, is and and then because I wouldn't cooperate is is fu- it's it's fucking insane. It's just it is. It's just me. I you know it, it, it's such a strange hill to die on. You know, like I sure didn't think when I started my career selling nickel bags at the benches in Squirrel Hill when I was like 13 years old that I was going to like be the Squirrel Hill weed boss and then get like dragged up in this like political kerfluffle that sends me to federal prison for it. It's just like you know, it's such a waste. It's a waste of everyone's lives that died in this too. You know, like they 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 literally people died because of these indictments that were brought. They killed themselves because. Yeah. The federal government foreclosed on their idea of a future. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, this this isn't you know, there's a million injustices happening. This is this is one of them that's happening right now. It's happening to me, but it's not just me. It's the other 2,800 people. Like honestly, look, if there was some bizarre Faustian conditional bargain where the other 27 uh, 2799 got to go free and I had to go sit and do my five then I'm okay with that. You know, just like let my friends go. My friend Bobby Capelli got 95 months for a Cessna with 400 pounds in it in Connecticut. He's in Otisville right now. Same deal. Wouldn't, wouldn't tell anybody. I wouldn't hurt a fly. I just talked to uh, my friend Pepe, Pepe Bodnar from Connecticut. He just came home after doing two and a half on five in Lewisburg for, for the same case, you know, it's like, it, it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it never ends. We were the people who got you guys pot when you needed pot before the stores were open. 
Uh, it's cool if you, if we don't if we're not allowed to sell pot anymore because these stores are a corporate competition. But like maybe not like decade long federal prison sentences. Maybe just like a fine and like on our way. Or maybe give us a job in the fucking industry because that's what we were good at anyways. I don't understand. Like you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No. I mean, I, this is right. I mean, you know, you're about to go to prison for something that uh, vast numbers of people are legally making money doing right now. Hundred percent, and 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 none of these people would have ever made any of this money in Pittsburgh had we not opened that store. Or if they did, it would have been much later because we are the ones who flung that Overton window as wide as it was. You know, without without us, you know, we we had the store first. So when other stores, when when it became time to have an initiative for other stores to open, people were totally okay with it because you know there was a store. Already, yeah. I, I, I just, uh, you know, like I said, I don't need, I don't need a statue built of me. It would just be sure, great. Sure, I would sure. have to rot in federal prison in my forties. I just, I, I, I completely moved on with my life and had told virtually no one about this and was totally okay with that being the rest of my life. But now I have to, you know, bang on my tin pot and stand on my soapbox until they literally drag me away into prison and say no pardons, no votes. You know, hold these people to their word, because as the Democrats like to say, you know, that's what Biden knows. He's like, it's weed, man. It's not important. Like, I already know. That's what the weed's a minor issue. Okay, well, if it's such a minor issue, then do something about it. And if you can't do that then you really are just hustling us for our votes until you all die in office at the age of 95. And we're like fucking 60, 55 and inheriting the smoldering wreck of a society that you handed to us after you extracted all the money and, uh, and, and, and perks for yourself. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. that is, that is extraordinarily well said. Well, uh, I hope uh, I hope we can get this uh, get this episode out there, and we can get the uh, we can get we can get you on as many other places as possible. To uh, please, to please, I'll do I'll do anything I can until the day that they drag me away. I got till May eighth. I mean, you know, any platform that I can talk my talk on and spread this, I really appreciate it, Ben. I'll do it. Thank you. All right. Well. All right. Uh, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Daniel. Uh, people, go to that uh, go to that website, and uh, and I, you know, I, I just I don't even know what to say. But we will uh, we will do what we can to uh, uh, to get the word out. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Bye. Thanks.